This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. The superintendent spent a lot of time just telling me about his passion for this work and why it's needed and highlighting that, um, particularly after the shutdown with COVID and we had to you know, go into remote learning, it really put a, a magnifying glass on the fact that some students didn't have access to the, to the things that they needed. Um, and so I believe through that experience, the district identified this as a need, that we are missing some, some kids. Um, and this is a priority, that's, that's what I, I was told, and therefore we would love for you to come in and, and really just help us build a plan um, to help bridge these gaps, to give these students access to what they need, all students access to what they need. Welcome back. You're listening to Laree Daniel Favors. That was the voice of one Cecilia Lewis, who as a middle school principal was, I think, someone we could describe as a principal's principal, uh, phenomenally accomplished, uh, having really achieved wonderful heights in her career. She had initially applied for a position uh, that would bring her closer to the classroom as a coach for other teachers. However, district leaders were so impressed by her interview that they took it a step further and encouraged her to apply instead for an opening they had just created, their first administrator who would be focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in initiatives. Uh, Cecilia Lewis is here with us today, as well as Nicole Carr, uh, who is a reporter for one of my favorite outlets. Y'all know I love me some ProPublica. She focuses on criminal justice and racial inequity for ProPublica's South Unit and previously served as an investigative reporter for WSB-TV in Atlanta. In addition to covering Georgia's historic 2020 elections and various aspects of the pandemic, uh, Ms. Carr's work has been rooted in law enforcement and government accountability. I am so grateful for both of you being with us this morning. Thank you for joining the Larry Daniel Favors Show. Thank you so much for having us. We're happy to be here. Now, Ms. Lewis, I I know that your time with us is a bit tight because you're you're literally in additional training right now because you are so (laughs) committed to your career and to showing up as best as you can. Uh, You mentioned in that opening clip that this position and and your role in it and the encouragement you received to apply for the position was really about meeting the needs of those children who had gone for so long without having their needs met. Can you talk with us about that possibility population of children in this district. Uh, What was it about their needs having gone unmet that was so significant that the district encouraged you to not apply for the position you had applied for, but instead to fill this role that was specifically designed to meet those needs? Yeah, so, um, (laughs) you know, I, I am extremely passionate as an educator about just engaging with children and families and making sure that we are meeting them where they are and taking them to where you know we, they need to go. And so I'm, I'm extremely vision focused. And um, when the district shared that they were committed to every child every day, um, that you know they certainly had recognized the need for any type of supports for students who they'd identified as not having access to certain resources or uh, materials during 
the pandemic, when we had transitioned to remote learning, um, they said that they wanted to address that. And so we certainly as educators recognize every day, you know, we live it um, regularly that we have to address any type of gaps, um, whether it's opportunity gaps, because we recognize that opportunity gaps is a direct link to achievement gaps. And because our work is founded in ensuring that we um, have that every support every child in achieving, then we wanted to make sure we address that in the districts that they were committed to that work. I believe that just, um, you know, based on my interview with the district leaders at that time, some of the experiences that I'd shared with my work with inclusion and diversity and equity um, as a principal in my own building, that just hit, you know, hit something in them that said, you know, we, we really would love for you to come on board and help us with the work that we're starting here. So I just want to be clear, the people whose job it is, is to see what is happening with the children in the district, the people who are responsible with making sure all the children have access to an equitable education, they saw you and said, wow, here are a series of needs that we have. Here is an amazing candidate. This is a match made in heaven, which would seem a, a wonderful beginning to a new phase of your career. And yet shortly after uh, you were offered this position and, and as you were preparing to move south, uh, we see from the reporting of Ms. Carr uh, that you've received a phone call. And this phone call was from an official in your district asking you if you had ever heard of CRT. Talk with us about what that conversation was like. Yeah, so it, it was, you know, it was very casual. At that point, I had established, and it was a very brief amount of time from the time that I'd, I'd met the district leadership in Cherokee County um, to me accepting the position, we're interviewing first and then accepting the position, we really formed um, immediate like relationships. I mean, we certainly um, were speaking on a regular basis and about you know the work and the goals. And so when I got the call, it was pretty casual. I mean, it was not you know a tense moment. It was, hey, we are getting some, some buzz from uh, at that point, a very small group within the community who was um, concerned about your appointment and asking questions related to um, your supposed attachment to CRT. And they specifically just directly asked me, had I heard of CRT? And I initially thought, um, of course, we, we all do in, in the work, um, culturally re relevant teaching, that's a part of, um, you know, most educators work right. today. Um, ensuring that we are addressing the cultural competencies of the students and the families we serve. And so they said, no, not that one. Um, there's another CRT called critical race theory. And so I said that I had not heard of it at that point. Now, as an attorney, I'm very familiar with CRT. I, I learned it from Derek Bell. May he rest in peace uh, when I was a law student at NYU. But as an educator, a lawyer who's committed to educational equity, uh, who helps to train educators, I am in love with culturally responsive teaching. And my first entry into the education field was through a very culturally responsive education program known as Freedom Schools, literally the embodiment of what uh, culturally responsive teaching is like. So with both CRTs percolating in my head, I can only imagine 
imagine, Ms. Carr, uh, as you were reporting on this and as you had a chance to go back and look at what's hap- what was happening, that phone call really signals a, a, a shift in what was happening in the local community that Ms. Lewis was about to enter. Talk with us about what you're rep- reporting. Again, I love ProPublica. Y'all do some amazing work. Uh, but talk with us about, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say it, uh, talk with us about what you're reporting uncovered about this small group of people who are about to make a whole lot of noise. Yeah, well, you know, I, I wrote this column about how the reporting started, and it, it was really myself and another, um, a former colleague of mine, talking back in December about all of the uproar. You know, we started hearing about critical race theory in, in all, December of 21. By then, you've, you've got governors out here who are declaring they're against it, and state school boards saying they're against this, and uh we, he brought up Cecilia and he said, you know, there was an educator in Cherokee County and this, this and that happened. I said, yeah, I remember. And she left before she started this job and it didn't set well with us. <laughs> it was like, what happened to her? And so um, one thing led to another and uh, did a little quick Google search and, and, and saw where, okay, I want to reach out to her. And, and see what happened because there wasn't a whole lot of reporting around it right. and it just didn't sit well. And um, so, as you know, from the piece in the column, you know, this is not something Cecilia wanted to talk about at the time. She had moved on. She had mm-hmm. moved on. And um, while I was trying to reach out to her, I started doing open records requests, FOIA requests in the district. And the first one was just for um, a hit on her name in emails Mm. to school board members inboxes. And uh, it was so massive. Uh, I think the first request I'd done was for a month worth of records that it cost $8,000. Oh my God. (laughs) There was that much communication about her hire. Wow. Right. This is between, you know, school board members, the comms person, a few key people in the district. It wasn't an expansive request, but it was going to cost. So I said, well, okay, well, give me a week. And I chose a week where there's a scene in the story where you, you um, see the school board meeting. Right. Right. So completely chaotic. And so through that, to make a long story short and to answer your question. Through the records request, I was able to um, identify some people I thought I should talk to, and I was able to locate someone who essentially became a mole for the story. Mm. And was like, there's something else you need to hear. And that's how you get to this clubhouse scene uh, ahead of of Cecilia's resignation, and you hear the um, organizing effort. To me, it was important to do the story around the organizing effort to say these are not grassroots efforts in communities. This comes from a higher place. That's right. It's very organized. And um, so what we get to hear a bit of is, is how that begins in a community. Mm. So we have, and from the reporting and folks, we're going to be tweeting this out at SXM Urban View, and I'll share it at my account as well on Twitter. Uh, what we see in this description of this clubhouse scene, it, it's almost like a, a modern version of a Game of Thrones strategy session. And we see people who, uh, we, there's one Rhonda Thomas, who is, is basically uh, someone who's very frequently uh, highlighted and, and it serves as a guest on many conservative podcasts. Uh, she's the founder of the Atlanta-based Truth in Education, which is a national nonprofit organization 
generation that wants to prepare, and I put that in air quotes, parents and teachers about the, quote, radical ideologies being taught in schools. Uh, She asks the crowd, what is critical race theory? And according to the reporting, the response is, uh, it teaches kids that whites are inherently racist and oppressive, perhaps unconsciously, and that all whites are responsible for all historical actions and should feel guilty. I can just say once, finally, again, that is not what CRT is. That is not what CRT does, and it is not being taught in the schools. Uh, She says, I can't ask for repentance for something my grandparents or ancestors did. Now, audience, I want you to imagine this conversation in a room full of people who have already been primed to show up against uh, Ms. Lewis. Uh, They say that the parents in the room are told that they should avoid the PTA uh, because the PTA supports everything we're against. A presenter says that uh, they're they're trying to uh, indoctrinate your children with comprehensive sexuality education, gender ideology, literally hitting on all of the elements, all of them. The parents are told it's okay to be emotional. Capture video of yourself being really emotional because Tucker Carlson might want to put you on air. Uh, This sounds, Ms. Carr, to me like a training session from some, I can imagine a whiteboard, uh, slides, samples. This is, this is, this requires some funding, Ms. Uh, Ms. Carr, what do we know about the sophisticated effort uh, that was really being undertaken here? Because this was not some grassroots gathering of innocent parents. Right. And so for, for context, you know, we're talking about the spring of 2021. And mm. so people need to put themselves back in the spring of 21. And as we're reporting, and some groups have become uh, very mainstream since then, Moms for Liberty, these are groups that were registered in states uh, as national heads between like January and May of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a group saying they are representing uh, uh, concerned parents, this parents defending education, um, uh, truth in education in your community, go look at when the group was registered through your attorney wow. general's office. Wow. Because it all happened at the same time as before these laws were percolating and all of this. And you're right. There were materials. There were recordings that were played. There's a Mm. uh, that recording is two hours long. So you're just getting a glimpse of it in the story. And so it it was very it was very high up there. And then you see by the end of the meeting, it's like, well, what can we do about Cecilia Lewis? We can do something, can't we? And then days later, we get to this really what's a horrific scene at a school board meeting. Ms. Lewis, let's turn back to you now, because I I think unbeknownst to you, you had a whole effort being mounted up against you before you had even really gotten to to sit behind your desk. Uh, There were video lessons, toolkits, they had indoctrination maps, they had all types of materials to literally prepare a section of this community to fight against you, your hire and your efforts. Talk with us about what happened at that school board meeting that that triggered you to, to be of the mindset that this was no longer going to be where you could stay. Yeah, so there were several things. I mean, there were a lot of interconnected points throughout that meeting. And of course, at that point, I was still I was still here in Maryland. I had not gone back to Georgia, although many lies were spread that there were sightings of me and that I had been there mm. since, and I had not been back since my um, final phase of my interview with the superintendent. Um, so I was asked that morning, was I going to um, watch the school board meeting? And I certainly had not planned on it at that point. Um, again, I'm still the principal of my school and, and supporting my community. So I had not yet transitioned into the role in Georgia as of yet. So when I started watching it that evening, 
um, I was really encouraged initially. So let me highlight that because um, they were celebrating students, they were celebrating um, teachers of the year, educators um, and support staff. And so I was like, yes, I love districts who start you know, with celebrations because we should always lead our work with celebrating the good things that are happening. But unfortunately, it quickly shifted um, with the uh, open comments. Um, once that opened up and parents, community members started speaking. Now the board had clearly stated that, you know, the, the guidelines, expectations of any board meeting rules per se was that you are not to mention names directly of any employee. And I was employed, although my contract had not yet started until June. Mm -hmm. um, but then my name was just thrown out there and I was, I, I was, you know, taken aback, like, whoa, didn't they just say it? And they would interrupt and say, hey, we, we said no, no names. And then it just got heated related to how much money I was going to be making. Um, interesting enough, you mentioned how, you know, all of this accusation related to indoctrination. And I think words like that, that are so powerful when we think about the history of our country and the things that truly are rooted in indoctrination around the world. Um, for me to be attached to something like that was just shocking because, you know, critical race theory, I understood that people had a misunderstanding um, with what the theory is, right? That first and foremost, just highlighting that it is a theory, right? It provides a framework for critical analysis, right. interrogating, you know, the role of race throughout society versus what indoctrination is. So indoctrination is completely different from analysis and indoctrination is like teaching a person, you know, or a group of people, a set of beliefs uncritically, right. like telling them to accept it right. uncritically. And this is incomplete conflict with what I do and all educators do. Like we promote critical examination of ideas, critical thinking, in fact, is one of the highest metrics of effective teaching and learning. So I was offended, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm not here to, and I, first and foremost, I didn't realize that I had that much power, <laughs> you know, to right. indoctrinate a community that I'm just being placed in. So there were lots of pieces, all of the um, quotes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how mm -hmm. much you know, all the work that he led and is still, I mean, you know, there's, there's just what we're using him to attack mm. a person. It was just so, such a conflict of belief for me. So um, it became very, very personal because, um, you know, I understood initially that they were attacking the position. That's what I was told. Like mm. I, it was never personal. And I guess that board meeting made it very personal. And it made me remember, you know, I we should always choose people over politics. In my case, the attack came first on the position, but then it quickly shifted to the person. Right. And right. It, it just was unacceptable and it was unbelievable. You know, I'm reminded of Dr. Carter G. Woodson when he wrote in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. He talks about the type of education that black children were receiving. And he talks about the fact that uh, the education that white children receive and the education that black children receive are not the same thing. Uh, but even when they are the same thing, the education is designed to meet the needs of white children and their families. He says, quote, the same educational process, which inspires and stimulates the oppressor with the thought that he is everything, has accomplished everything 
worthwhile depresses and crushes at the same time the spark of genius in the Negro by making him feel that his, their race <laughs> does not amount to much. I hate the sexist language of the old days uh, and never will measure up to the standards of other people. The Negro thus educated is a hopeless liability of the race. And he's speaking there about the different types of education, which uh, if we were having an education that was going to center the needs of black children, which according to what I read from the reports were among the children who were doing the worst in this district, uh, children of color were not having their needs met. Uh, and it was an anathema to him. He could not understand how uh, parents would allow their children to go into these schools that were specifically through their curriculum, uh, environment, school environment, uh, discipline practices were designed to benefit the needs of white children to the exclusion of those needs of other children. It sounds as though this district recognized that reality and was attempting to do something that would allow for an equitable education. And yet uh, we see what happens when the folks who, quite frankly, benefit from that type of education feel empowered enough to be able uh, to prevent uh, any changes in that way that might require um, them to actually grapple with the history there. Uh, but Ms. Lewis, your story doesn't end there. Talk with us about the aftermath uh, after your decision to leave uh, this position. Talk with us about how uh, the challenges that you face continued. So, yeah, I, when I attempted to transition from a clearly biased, misinformed opportunity in Cherokee um, to what I thought was a non-biased new opportunity in Cobb, to my dismay, the unfounded attacks on me, the person, began to quickly impact my position. So mm -hmm. I'm in a completely different role, again, transition to um, a whole new district, went through the entire process of interviewing, um, extremely rigorous interviews, multiple interviews with high level um, district officials. Um, again, having to prove myself for lack mm. of a better word. Mm. Um, and I succeeded because they selected me as the candidate as the supervisor of social studies for wow. Cobb County. Um, but I later actually very quickly found that those involved with attacking me in the first place, they began to use my story um, mm -hmm. in Cherokee for political gain and then followed me to Cobb County mm. um, and began to, you know, send in different forms of misinformation, I guess, to the board members, and then again in Cobb, district leadership reached out to me saying things are percolating about what happened in Cherokee. So initially, again, I, I, was, I was shocked. What? I haven't done anything. Again, I have just accepted to support students and families as, you know, as is my role and my passion and what I'm grounded in. And that's all I know how to do. I don't know how to deal with all this other political stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in it. I've done nothing. And so, um, you know, auto automatically it became canceling any appointments or department meetings. I couldn't meet any teams um, in the schools. I ultimately just could not carry out my role. I was um, denied the opportunity to um, begin the work that I was hired to do. And I was put on this wild goose chase of analyzing um, the adopted, and I want to highlight that word, adopted curricula in social studies and understand that in education, anything adopted by a district has to go through 
a high level of scrutiny um, with okay. stakeholder feedback and there's multiple levels. We don't just pull things in because we want to hear from the community, from parents um, about their, their feedback, about you know what resources we're utilizing. And so we're very open to that in everywhere I've ever worked. So they just threw me in a corner <laughs> pretty much and basically said, you can't go anywhere. Um, you don't send any email, um, any emails to anyone without permission. Mm. As you noted in the article, nothing was ever approved um, throughout my time there to communicate with anyone. So um, again, I had to um, make a decision for me personally to transition out of that situation. And I just want to say I'm so grateful that you did because uh, I am team preserve your peace uh, and, and I am team protect black women. Uh, I know that you you have to head out and, and Ms. Carr, I'm so grateful that you'll be with us to help unpack more of the national implications here. Uh, but Ms. Lewis, before you go, have you considered any legal action? I imagine there are a lot of defamatory statements made about you. Uh, have you thought about exploring any legal action to combat uh, these folks who seem to be trailing you and, and trying to target you wherever you may go so I would say initially I had not I, you know again as Nicole stated you know um, she and I have since formed a wonderful relationship and that in itself has just been a blessing mm. um, through this process but um, initially no however people have reached out to me um, and have made me more informed about how certain pieces of my rights um, have been violated and um, so as I'm learning more about the options, then that certainly could be a possibility. I, as an attorney, would simply encourage you to continue down that pathway of inquiry. Um, these cases matter. These situations matter. And I am so glad that you were able to manage this safely. Uh, it is an absolute horrifying experience and one that I think, unfortunately, we are going to see replicated many more times before we set this nation back to right. Uh, I'm so grateful for you being with us today. I know you have to go. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please do keep us updated on where this story goes. Uh, we would love to have you back to talk about any updates or additional information that you think should be shared. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with guest Nicole Carr. We just uh, said our bid our adieus to uh, the amazing Cecilia Lewis, who was the principal in the story uh, that Ms. Carr wrote about for ProPublica entitled White Parents Rallied to Chase a Black Educator Out of Town. Then they followed her to the next one. Uh, Nicole Carr, your writing in this story is prolific. Uh, and, and you've not just covered this particular angle of it, but you've also written an article about the resistance Ms. Lewis had to even wanting to talk about this article, frankly, because there was a lot of danger involved in what she was navigating. Talk with us about some of the more sinister elements of this story that you uncovered and what they signal to you about the direction this nation is going. You know, as I was uh, pursuing this, I knew this was, so this is trauma reporting, actually. Oh. And we're going to see a lot more of this as we, uh, as we, seek to figure out what's happening in public education and the dynamics that are at play, uh, journalists should treat this as, as trauma reporting. Mm. So whether you're talking an election worker from 2020 under the scope of the, the big lie and what we've seen play out in uh, January 6th committee hearings, testimony we've heard there, uh, educators are going to have some of the same type of testimony. Mm. Uh, what I could not get to until she agreed to talk was 
um, kind of the timeline and it plays out in the story of what she was receiving while she was in Maryland before she could start the job. Wow. And so those were um, emails, you know, what are your intentions? Uh, you know, we don't want you here calling her a black Yankee from the North. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's when the element of race, you know, kind of starts to click for her. You read in the story, she's not even willing to, to go there. Like it doesn't right. feel like racism until somebody starts talking. Right. 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 And um, you don't want to find out what will happen if you come here. This is mm-hmm. like not, this isn't so much of a whistle. Like we know what comes with the tone and what's behind the meaning of words like that. That's right. It is reminiscent of a, of, um, of a time not so long ago. And so this this person that I had, I had a, a lot of good sources who don't make it into the story, but are able to guide things. I mean, you have a, a scene where they're protesting the position, the hiring her, where you have people, parents pounding on windows of a building. Wow. That's this... not a simple concern. Right. I, I got to be honest with you, seeing as I don't recall ever having seen parents of this sort pounding on windows to prevent, I don't know, mass school shootings that are actually harmful uh, to children. This feels very lynch mobby to me. I'm just going to say it. It feels like because we've got you talk in the story about how uh, not only was there this targeted effort to reach her and to, to reach out to her and to contact her with these hostile messages before she even got there. Uh, but you talk about the fact that there were they were basically trying to say they had cited her. There were people who were like, oh, there's somebody, a black woman here with with like plates from Maryland. And we think it's her literally on like a, a Cecilia Lewis watch how this feels like a modern day lynch mob. I don't know if that's taking it too far, but that's how I'm seeing it. Well, I, I, what we try to do in this story is lay out. So I think you see multiple views. Like you, you run through the story and the timeline from, from different views, right? Mm. So you've got her at home with her husband and sitting back and watching this stuff. And when we go back to that meeting scene, we're able to fill in stuff she can't even see through the computer on the live stream. Like you had to have been there in the room. And so the big uh, prayer circle and the the government, I don't co-parent with the government t-shirts that people were wearing and the pounding of the windows outside. This Mm. is organized, bigger, bigger and dangerous. Wow, wow. It's dangerous. And she doesn't even have that view. Right. But what she sees is bad enough. And so what we're able to do, um, so she quits that job the next day. They're still claiming to see her. She's already quit the job. She's not come back to Georgia yet. Mm. It's just a complete lie. But we're able to see that because, again, I have access to the group where they're talking. And it's like clockwork as things are happening. I mean, there were forum letters sent to the district ahead of that, like 100 in a a couple days time, exact form letters signed off. So that's that, that goes back to the training. Here's your template, you know, so it's, it's in everything. It's in private Facebook groups. It's in contacting her. It's in the meetings that are happening locally and on the ground. And so, you know, Mm. that does feel (sighs) 
It feels lynch mobby. <laughs> so 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK is the number. You're listening to Larry Daniel Favors, and I'm in conversation with reporter Nicole Carr, uh, who wrote the fantastic uh, articles that chronicled what happened to Miss Lewis. And I'm struck by the fact that for a, a while, there was some resistance on her part to even name this as racism. And I got to be honest with you, Nicole, as, as I look at the way our, you know, Gen X generations and kind of younger, those of us who sort of came up in what is supposed to be an integrated America, there's a real resistance to naming a thing as racism. Even though people say, oh, you're always talking about racism. Actually, you would be surprised, someone who says that, at the pains that black people go to to bend over backwards to find some other reason that could be used to identify the cause of this harm. And it sounds as though uh, Ms. Lewis was in that vein when she did not want to identify it as racism until it could no longer be ignored. I'm reminded by uh, the book Learning in a Burning House by Dr. Sonia Douglas Horsford where she talks about the fact after Brown versus Board of Education this type of pressure and, and the policies that said absolutely not we will not be integrating in these schools we will resist this at every front the violent you, the banging on the windows the, the demanding that the schools be shut down were so significant um, that up to 90% of black administrators like Miss Lewis lost their jobs within the first decade up to 40% of black educators educators lost their job within the first decade following Brown v. Board of Education. So this isn't just lynch mobby in sort of a, a distant sense. This is a direct extension of those types of efforts that frankly were really successful. Outside of Miss Lewis's example and experience, what trends are you seeing across the country? You've said that you think this is trauma reporting and that educators are going to have many more of these stories. What implications does that have uh, for education in this country? And what are the implications we should draw from the very well-organized efforts of these anti-culturally responsive education groups? That's what they're really against. They're against culturally responsive education. What are the implications for both of those elements? Yeah, so there's two things I, I would hit on here. Um, we we see teachers unions and, and folks who have an interest in educators already prepping for the next big thing, right? Mm. So you've got national unions who have um, said, okay, we're, gonna, we're putting aside a defense fund. We're doing this. What we have in play going into the next school year that we did not have last year are laws. Mm. Okay, so out of this, out of 2020, 21, uh, you had declarations of, you know, we don't treat, um, you know, like for the state of Georgia, our state board declared wow. Georgia is a racist state and the United States is not a racist country. Hmm. And so we're against this teaching. So all of a sudden we've gone from something that most people could agree just did not exist in public schools as, as teaching, it, it still does not, to something that is baked into new legislation mm. going into the new school year. So what happens when you violate uh, a new policy set, not for, not just set forth by a school board, but by a state board of education, um, by a state government? So we should prepare to see what that fallout looks like. Mm. Uh, as journalists, I think, uh, the the thing that we will atone for media as a whole and I don't like to say the media there's so much media it's like what are you talking about you're talking yeah. about talking heads you're talking about opinion you're talking about local news you're talking about whatever it was important to me to break down the hysteria to show 
the organization because mm. it had been mischaracterized. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I'm a concerned parent. My neighbors of, of all uh, nationalities, races around me, we live in a very diverse uh, community. We are all concerned parents right. with children in public school systems. In this effort, this was not a diverse effort of um, resistance. Mm. Uh, it, it, so you have to ask yourself as a journalist going to a school board or what, when you see things that are abnormal, it's not normal for people to beat on windows. Right. It's not normal for the school district to go and borrow, in this case in Cherokee County, go and borrow metal detectors from the government center across the street wow. for the first time ever. So you got to stop and think, is my framing of this story accurate to what is happening? Mm. Are we just are we just saying because someone says I'm a concerned parent, you know, how do we look at that with a critical eye and say, is that what we're really dealing with? Right. Or are we dealing with something partisan? Are we dealing with something racial? And so you can argue all day long that it's not about this, this or that. I think what this story does and what we aim to do in any of our work is lay out the facts. Mm. So and whether the, you choose to accept what has played out or not, that's on you. But this, what happened here is indisputable. Right. And I think that's so important to point out the fact that the people who are banging on windows, these are not diverse groups of people. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, a Benetton commercial of folks. Uh, boy, did I just date myself. <laughs> we're not talking about like, like some diverse group of, you know, we are the rainbow of America resistance to this. We're talking about white parents. We're talking about white people, some of whom are not parents of children in these schools. And you have one quote of Leanne Etienne, uh, 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK is the number, uh, where Leanne Etienne, who is a black mother of two Cherokee County students, says to you, these are our neighbors, right? And this is someone who served on the superintendent's ad hoc committee uh, that led to the creation of the diversity and equity and inclusion position. And remember, folks, after the murder or the lynching of, of, of George Floyd on TV or on camera, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, a lot of parents, myself included, pushed to have an escalation in curriculum that was going to center the needs of all children. We pushed to have uh, a hiring practices that were going to center the needs of all children, not because we wanted some children excluded, but because our children had been excluded. Their needs had not been allowed to, to, to come to the fore. And Leanne Etienne, this mother says, these are people who are the parents of the children my kids go to school with. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. You don't know who to trust. You do not feel safe. So we've got black parents, uh, Latino parents, Asian parents, uh, and their allies, a diverse group of parents fighting for equity and justice in education. And you've got this very white group of parents who are resistant to that, literally sort of the embodiment of what uh, Carter G. Woodson talks about in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. Talk with us about many in the media, uh, whether they be talking heads, print journalists, opinion, what have you, their inability to name that thing. It feels like other than uh, uh, journalists of color, we do not have a lot of journalists who are capable or, or who are simply for whatever reason, not naming this as what it is. What does that tell us about the state of reporting on this topic? Yeah, it, 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 you know, when you're talking about diversity in a newsroom or any space, right, you're talking across um, a lot of categories, diversity in, in thought, where you've lived, what you've been exposed to, race, you know, you can pick out anything, right? Hmm. Uh, 
these conversations are important because as you're approaching stories, you need to have a lot of people in the room who can stop and say, you know, what are we getting at here? But um, it's a hard truth, hmm. you know, and we are taught in, in our typical framework in journalism, it's like, you know, you're, you're to be neutral, unbiased, objective. We never, we need to start thinking critically about um, the lens of objectivity. Mm. So who determines what that is? Right. And does bias apply to truth? Again, I challenge mm. you to challenge a fact in the story. We're very good at atoning, and I'm talking media as a whole. I'm not talking about who I work for or, or who I've worked for. I'm talking landscape at atoning for our coverage in hindsight, decades mm. later. Mm. If we think about the way civil rights uh, framing was, and let's remember as black journalists, even in the Washington Post newsroom, remember how newsrooms integrated. You know, a lot of times white reporters didn't feel safe going into the movement and covering it. And so mainstream wise, we were brought in to cover a beat. Mm. Like that's like, we have things to atone for mm. in industry. Yeah. And it's much, it's much easier to do that down the road than it is to deal with something that's in front of you and in this time. And, you know, and you're not wanting to, to um, look, I'm someone with a background, very well-traveled, lived overseas here and there, attended HBCU, PWI, uh, Democrats and Republicans in my family, black and white in my family. I don't, I don't have a, a problem with seeing other people right and seeing right so why why do we assume that that's the issue we need mm. to deal with what we're going through now and that part of our job a huge part of our job as journalists and i teach this to my students over at morehouse you are the first draft of history wow okay we're not just huh. here for to tell the here and now this what we write is literally the first draft. i said think about the press release that went out uh, in the George Floyd death, think about if mm. the young lady was there recording, right. that would have been the story of his life, the end, and it would have been reported that way. Mm. Think about Ahmaud Arbery without the man who turned over the recording because he thought it would exonerate him from serious charges and say, see, I wasn't the one doing the shooting. Think about what that right. story was without the recording. Right. Think about what Cecilia Lewis's story is without the open records request, without hearing the clubhouse, without seeing what the camera view of the school board meeting does not show you. Mm. There's always more to a story. You have to pursue it. Mm. You and have we, to pursue it. We don't get it. <laughs> and we need more people who aren't just uh, bold enough to pursue it, but frankly, who are committed to truth and to see our humanity to be able to see those things. And, and one of the things that really comes across in your reporting, and, and again, it is not lost on me that uh, you look very much like me, 
That's for the audience. If you know, you know. Uh, so you have some insight. You know, you've already mentioned that uh, you teach journalism at, at Morehouse so that the, the people I sense can sense some cultural affinity. Um, but I, I really want you to help us to understand what black parents, uh, non-white parents are going to be facing uh, as they go back to school this year. Many of us, again, who fought for these, these efforts. I remember when uh, my, my son was younger, organizing with a group of women called Parenting While Black. And we were, in, we were intentional boys. We were serious about defending our children. And then as our children got older, we sort of, you know, fell back a little bit on that organizing. I have now a much younger child, so I'm right back with it again. And, and we see sort of this waning of involvement of many parents because, frankly, we raising our kids. We work and we doing all the things and we got radio shows. We got all the things happening. But we need to be clear. This effort is a full-time enterprise for some of these folks. This desire to push education back into a space where only the story that centers the descendants of those who owned enslaved black people are get to be told. What should parents be aware of? You've already mentioned the laws that exist that are going to make a lot of hurdles uh, and create some stumbling blocks. What should our parents who are perhaps not even aware of the vitriol that's out there, how should we be preparing for this? Because this is not going away. And I'm sorry, but what you ain't, we ain't going back. I'm a Gen X. I saw eyes on the prize. I ain't trying to live it. Okay. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, Nicole, I see you laughing, but I'm not trying to go there if I can avoid it. How do I become a mama bear? Who's going to be able to, to roar on behalf of my babies, the babies in my community effectively enough to combat these people who are literally, this is now their full-time job. So let, let me let me throw this out there too, because this is going to apply to all of us, right? Um, my mama bear, papa bear, he or she, not revealing it. My mole for this story mm. is is a white person. Mm. Okay. The reason the mole had access to this. Now the mole didn't find me. I happened to find the mole, not knowing the mole had what the mole had. Wow. Recording access to the page, all of that. The mole, the purpose in having all of that was to uh, show to other friends, like, look what is happening. Mm. I need you guys to show up because this is not good. Mm. And had this, showed it to friends and they said, this is awful. This is horrible. Wow. But they didn't show up. They didn't show up to the board meetings and they didn't want the attention on them. It did not affect them mm. the way that it did. So one, we all, black, white, Asian, Latino, purple, yellow, blue, you have to show up. That's right. Because... That's right. And this was the mole's way of trying to show up, not not to get to media. It just so happened, as, as luck would have it or whatever, that I was able to connect dots and locate people who, who filled this out. Without that person, there's no window into this. Mm. Some of the stuff I can get on my own and just reporting, but without somebody who recognizes, but is accepted and has access, to the conversations into we don't get the extent of it. Mm -hmm. So we all have to show up. Wow. That's one. Also, we all we have to have a fundamental understanding of what we're talking about, right? 
DEI, and we've touched on how it affects us in terms of race and history and how we grapple with uh, things that are happening now. But DEI, and anybody will tell you this from the school system to Cecilia to, to a parent, say I have a second grader who's in a wheelchair, okay? Hmm. And the annual second grade field trip, we have a contract with such and such and such and such doesn't have wheelchair access. Right. So my second grader just has to stay at school because there's no equity in that space would mean either switching contractors for the field trip and going to a place where all my children in the classroom can go mm. or working with the person we or the entity we contract with now to say, hey, to continue this relationship, we're going to need to make this wheelchair accessible um, and, and accessible for uh, our children with hearing problems or whatever, so that every year, every child in that classroom gets a chance to go on the second grade field trip. Right. We aren't thinking critically about what we are demonizing mm. or arguing about. Because in the end, when you're talking access and equity, it is a matter of all children of all families. That's right. It just so happens that the data that we are, as in many things, as black and brown in this country, happen to fall on that end of the data that needs addressing. Right. <laughs> right. And so it does become a racial thing, but it's not just race. It, 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 it benefits everyone. So if we can get out of someone telling us what it is we're fighting instead of the fundamental understanding of what is in front of us, mm -hmm. then we can all do Nicole Carr, uh, I am so grateful for you and the work that you do and this this story that you have been following. The article is phenomenal uh, and it is eye opening, heartbreaking, but it is a great primer on what is coming. And y'all, I know we don't have any intentions of going back into what they want us to go back into, but that has to be coupled with some resistance. You got to show up. We got to be in the spaces. We got to be able to respond when, when when you have, there have been some videos of black parents who said, well, now what we ain't doing is that. What we're not going to do is have this. And what you ain't going to do is talk over me while I'm on the mic. And so we know how to show up when we need to show up. Sometimes we can do so in dulcet tones that allow us to articulate ourselves in ways that could be easily understood by everybody. And sometimes we just got to have the hands and we got to say the words. We got to put the energy in it with our whole face, our full back and all of the lungs that we can muster. Uh, but in any event, we can't do any of that if we do not show up. Nicole, it's a phenomenal article. It made me so angry, um, which is exactly, I think, the emotion I needed to have upon reading it because that causes me to move to act. How can people follow you, follow the work that you do, uh, support you in any way? What can people do to connect with you further? Thank you. Well, I just want to thank you because you're a connection point right now. Uh, just having us on and talking about the story and breaking it down. Um, I thank you to you, uh, first of all. Absolutely. On Twitter, it's at Nicole F. Carr. Uh, website, Nicole F. Carr, ProPublica.org. For all of it, I mean, I have some amazing colleagues working uh, in so many spaces, but, but this as well. And uh, I see it as a uh, democracy space mm. as well. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, you know, follow our work at ProPublica. We're a nonprofit investigative newsroom. And so, uh, yeah, we want you to support. We want you to come if you still feel moved to 
to donate to see this type of work. It's in-depth, um, takes us some time. And we have some great uh, partners with Frontline on this. We plan to continue wow. the work into the documentary space as well. And yeah, and also let us know what's happening where mm. you are. Mm. You know, <laughs> if, if, you talk, if, uh, if you talk to us, uh, you know, then we can start looking at things that maybe we don't see uh, on the surface, but um, and a lot of feedback. This isn't a one-off story. It's a story of our time. Yeah. Um, and so we want to hear it. Yeah. say thank you. We, I suspect this will not be our last time communicating. We appreciate you.